Hello, and welcome to Inside Exercise. I'm Emeritus Professor Glenn McConnell. I just had a really great chat with Professor Stuart Phillips from McMaster University in Canada. He is an absolute expert on protein and muscle. So to give you an idea, he's had several hundred peer-reviewed journal articles, and also his H index is 115. So what this means is that he's had 115 journal articles that have been cited in other journal articles 115 times or more. This is really remarkable and easily within the top 1% of all scientists. So um, we talked a lot about um, how to increase your muscle mass and maintain your muscle mass. And we talked about how this is especially important with aging. So we talked about different types of exercise in terms of muscle mass, um, different ways of training to increase your muscle mass and maintain your muscle mass. And we also talked a lot about the optimum dietary practices to increase your muscle mass. So here, interestingly, um, Stuart said his opinion has changed over the years based on his research. So initially, he was very much of the opinion that you needed to get your protein, at least in part, from um, meat. But now he is finding with his research that as long as you have a healthy, um, well-balanced diet, you can get enough protein from plants and plant-based diets um, to, to increase your muscle mass and maintain your muscle mass. So that was very interesting. Now, the one caveat there was with aging, you need to be a little bit more careful um, with what you eat to make sure you're getting enough protein. Now, the other thing he mentioned was the timing of your protein intake is not that important. So he's shown that, um, for example, exercise increases protein synthesis for around 48 hours. So it makes very little difference that window um, of when you eat your protein. He also said that most people do not need any sort of protein supplementation. So if you have a normal, healthy, mixed diet, then there was no need to supplement with protein. So a very interesting chat. I think like myself, you'll get a lot out of this one. So stick around. Hi, Stuart. How are you? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing well, Glenn. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate Mate. it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're a massive following. It's something I can only dream of to get a following like yours on Twitter <laughs> um, for Inside Exercise. Forget it's, me. it's got its downsides as well, believe me. It means a lot of critics out there. Oh, yeah. But also you've managed to have, I never heard of this until Marty Gabala said it, this Kardashian index where people <laughs> have like a lot of followers but not many papers, but you've actually got both. So. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, John. John Hawley actually uh, teases me a little bit about the Kardashian index, and I said yeah. I'm not even close to where it becomes problematic. So I, <laughs> I said, if I not. do, I said then I'm I'm getting out of science, and uh, I should be on a talk show somewhere. Oh yeah, because it's what is it? the number of papers divided? No, the number of citations divided by the number of Twitter followers and you followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I still think you've got way more papers than maybe you've got way it's more followers. Still, than you. I'm still very happy with the range. Absolutely. I still think I'm a scientist as opposed to a social media celebrity. Exactly, and highly cited papers as well. So, okay, so. What I like to do sometimes at the start is to say, you know, how did you get into exercise research? Because a lot of people like I, I was originally like a like a, a runner. So I, I had the interest and then I became a researcher. Other people were scientists and then they became interested in exercise. How did you get to doing what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, thanks. I, you know, it, it's interesting to hang around in this field and to talk to people, a lot of whom were, were very, very good athletes to start out with. So mm. Uh, and I would love to be able to say I have a story like that, but I was a very mediocre athlete. Oh, okay. 
Um, but my, you know, my sports, I, I was a team sport guy growing up. Um, uh, I played rugby was my main sport. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and obviously like living in Canada, ice hockey and, you know, everything else that went along with it. But, um, yeah. uh, playing rugby, uh, I, uh, I broke my leg at a pivotal moment in my academic career, basically my last year of university. And I was convinced up until that time I was going to medical school. And, um, I, as a result of breaking my leg, I couldn't play rugby. And so I, I took on a thesis project. And it was one of those, and I know it doesn't happen for everybody, and it wasn't really a true epiphany, but it really was an experience where I got in the lab and I was, I was doing molecular biology of peroxisomes. It was totally different. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but but I, I really loved being in the lab and I loved school. I, I loved reading and discovering and I never really got tired of learning. And so when it came time to make a decision, I said, I'm gonna do a master's. And I did a master's and I did it with Mark Tarnopolsky, who, you know, a lot of, you know, he's, he's a legend. Um, and he really influenced how I thought about things. And, and I did it in athletes as well. So I, I, I got to combine my, my love of exercise and athletics with nutrition and then biochemistry and, and, and it just kind of, you know, spiraled out, out of control from there. And then I don't think it was until the time when I actually got the job here at McMaster, the same day that my colleague, Dr. Marty Gabala got hired, actually, we, we got hired on the same day oh, wow. that I was like, like, I literally was like, holy, like, I guess here I am. So I'm going to be a wow. professor, but I, I, but all along and, and, and people, uh, I've said this to people and they, and they say, oh, you're joking. And I said, I had doubts about what I was going to do. Like I knew I, mm-hmm. I liked science and I liked research. But I still, I was like, eh, I don't know if this is really going to, and then all of a sudden, and then this, you know, yeah, this, this year is 20, 26 years at McMaster. So it's, it's been a good run. Yeah. You've stayed there the whole time. I've noticed that yes. with a few of the Canadian people, they tend to stay at the same place, the same, well, Marty Gabbardo. No, actually. Yeah. He, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Yeah, of course. I was yeah. just thinking when I, I ended up doing my master's with David Costell at Ball State. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. Mick Master. Glenn McConnell, Mick Master. I should have done it. Yeah. After, <laughs> which is a. Well, we had you here for a little bit, didn't we? We, we, you, you've spent some time here. Now, funnily enough, I've, I've got around the place, but I've never actually been. I've driven through Ontario, oh, okay, right. um, Ontario State, but I've never actually gone to any of those universities. Mm. I haven't even like dropped in there, because when I did that, it was before I, you know, I was, I was like an academic. So anyway. Well, we both played rugby. I was like a fullback. What were you? What was uh, I started out because I was much smaller. I was a hooker, but then I graduated. But when I retired unofficially, I was a flanker. But I, I got okay. out of the game of rugby when guys who were bigger than me were yeah. wingers, you know? And you yeah. know the generation of that oh, game yeah. where it just started to, all of a sudden, I oh, was nuts. like, I, I got to get out of this. Well, actually, this is a good <laughs> little intro to the topic, right? Yes. <laughs> of how they got bigger and stronger. But yeah. I guess, okay, so what we're going to talk about today with, and, and everything around that, of course, gaining muscle to combat losing muscle, which which made me think a little bit is, you know, as people get older, they they start to take more of interest, interest in like aging research. And it is something, and I had Michael Joyner on here, which is great. And, yeah. and he was saying he wants to maximize, maximize his muscle mass before he gets to 70, because then after that, he thinks it won't. So that maybe that's a good... Yeah. sort of way to start talking about this why would you want to gain muscle to combat losing muscle 
Um, yeah, yeah. A bit like bone mass, is it, almost? Or? It, it, well, it, the parallels are striking. And I think this okay. is sort of what we're beginning to realize now is that, um, you know, the, and, and, you know, your description of uh, Mike and his, you know, sort of more, hey, aging is important. Um, I, I think you can characterize the first sort of half to two thirds of my career here is really focusing on young, healthy individuals and trying to maximize muscle mass from that end. And then as I got a little older, but also, you know, I'm the director of what's called the Physical Activity Center of Excellence here. And we've got 500 community members, the average age of which is about 72 uh, coming into exercise. And so and I started talking to these people and saying, you know, what is it that kind of keeps you going? What do you, why do you come here? What's, what's, you know, and, um, and then more of the tissue that we study, which is muscle, uh, it just became apparent that uh, there was as much to learn about preserving muscle to essentially buffer yourself against the decline as you age. Um, and that then sort of gave us another lease on, on the research that we're doing now. So I think the analogy with, with osteopenia, osteoporosis is pretty similar. It's not like the precipitous decline that you get in women after the menopause, although there's probably some suggestions that muscle shares some of the similar etiology because estrogen, you know, in women has some degree of muscle preservative properties, uh, but in men, it's the same thing. So age-related sarcopenia is this sort of slow decline, but um, yeah, so start out uh, as high as you can to buffer yourself against some sort of probably, I think it's disuse event. We, we like to mm. refer to them as and hospitalization, sickness, that sort of thing. And in that sense, then I think muscle becomes a functional reserve um, and an ability to buffer yourself against a COVID stay, an ICU, a, an operation, uh, you know, a cancer treatment, lots of different things. And, you know, an age, uh, unfortunately, is the major risk factor for all of those types of chronic diseases. And a fall, a fall is a major. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm interested, I guess, because, you know, it's the same with VO2 max. You know, people go, oh, yeah. you lose 1% per year or, you know, your heart function, whatever it is. But as you touched on then, how much of that can you stop by continuing to, to exercise? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a hard one to answer because, you know, interestingly enough, um, a lot of the data about the, uh, the decline in VO2 max comes from longitudinal studies of, you know, of masters athletes. Uh, and we don't have the same body of data in um, people who are, are lifters. Uh, for the most part, and this is an interesting sort of phenomenon that I've noticed is that if you lifted big heavy weights early in life, if you didn't stop doing it at some point, you're actually in a bit of a bad way later in life. So, you know, that's mm. been part of the push that I've sort of said, you know, there's a time in your life to lift heavy and don't get me wrong. When I was a young man, that's all I wanted to do. Mm. Uh, but at some point you got to back off on that because it's a, it's not a long-term solution and, and something that you can do day in and day out, but we don't have the same type of data to so if you lift weights, you can slow it to this degree or whatever. Uh, the assumption is based on observational cross-sectional studies, people who are stronger tend to live longer. They don't get as much cancer. They don't get as much heart disease. They don't get as much type two diabetes. 
Interestingly enough, everything that we're seeing now is that it's actually additive to cardiovascular fitness. So fitness oh, reduce wow. your risk like this, and then strength and muscle is another sort of knock. So the two together really, and you know, that's the guidelines, right? So exactly, exactly. I think I saw you send a tweet or someone sent a tweet the other day, um, you know, that, that people don't, they kind of think more about the cardiovascular um well, sorry, the aerobic, you know, you need to keep doing aerobic type exercise and don't yeah. necessarily think about, or I, I noticed on Twitter, because I, I didn't used to use Twitter as much, and now I do, you know, with inside exercise, yeah. I see all sorts of stuff. And often, often it's like the other way. It's like all they want to do is talk about doing weight training and they don't, they you know, don't do any, you know, yeah. cardio. Yeah. So- <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the ethos of the answer to the question of is, is always do something because it's a lot better than doing nothing. And it's, you know, taking people from nothing to something is the biggest reduction in risk for everything. We know that Um, the what of what you do uh, is, is an interesting question. And, and um, that's become a little bit of one of my more recent, I'll call it sideline obsessions is to, try and begin to get people to realize that, and I think this is probably true, and I forget who who said this on Twitter, uh, but essentially being cardiovascularly fit gets you to, let's call it old age, whatever that is, you know, 60, 65, without any sort of major chronic disease setting in. Uh, But being stronger at a certain point in your life, particularly as you get older, I think becomes the rate limiting uh parameter for doing particular things like standing up and getting out of a chair that's not a that's not a cardiovascular phenomenon going up and down stairs heart butt legs too so Mm -hmm. i i I, there's reason to believe that um doing both is 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 better for you and and the evidence is beginning to accumulate but you know i've done these talks at, at acsm and lots of other places where i've said if ken cooper from longitudinal aerobic study, Ken Cooper, were a lifter. Uh, we, we all know a lot more about lifting, but he was, he was a runner. Uh, and, you know, him and yes. Stephen Blair and then et cetera, you know, it, they've inculcated physical activity guidelines with aerobic fitness, as they should. Um, but I think we're beginning to appreciate the role that strength and, and, and muscle play a little bit more now. Okay. So do we need to talk, I, I think we do need to talk about how to maximize your gains, I guess. People are going to be interested yeah. in that. So, you know, how often, and I know it's kind of basic, but how often, how many sets, reps, you know, all that sort of stuff. But again, as you said, the main thing we want to do is get people to do exercise. That's the difficult one because in yeah. some ways you just want to keep it simple because the more complicated you get, they'll be like, hang on, yeah. did Stuart Phillips say I should do three sets or two sets? Whatever. And then it just gets so complicated they don't do it or... You know yep. what I mean? So, yep. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that there's sort of generic advice that, um, you know, if you've got completely novice, untrained people, uh, the guidelines have probably, probably got it right. You know, two sessions of strengthening exercise and, and the type of strengthening exercise that I talk about and that most people in, in, in the field talk about it, is weightlifting. And I, I do know that you know, some people have a beef with the fact that when they classify certain activities as strengthening, they might say, oh, you know, Pilates is strengthening. And it is to a certain degree, but it's not that 
type of strengthening work that I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. it's resistive in nature, trying to move a load that, you know, an external load um, that's heavier than you would normally do or for a certain number of repetitions. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get into the debate then becomes one of, you know, what are the maximum, you know, sets, reps, frequency, uh, type of, you know, free weights, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and it gets re- really complicated. And, and when I back out and take a, like a bigger picture, look at that, I say to people that if you accept the fact that when people talk about engaging in resistance exercise and self-report, uh, you've got about, uh, you know, I think it's pretty similar in Australia and probably most of Europe, the UK, Canada, and definitely the US, it's about 10% of the population. So, okay. I, so I'm talking about the 95% or the 90% or, or, or whatever you want to call it. I'm talking about most of the people and not the advanced trainers and yes. periodization and you know these sorts of things where you begin to get into very, very subtle twists, much like running, right? Like running's good for you. Yes, so go out and run or go out and walk. But once you've run a lot and if you want to be a better performer, then you know, just going out and running isn't enough. You've got to, you've got to have a track workout. You've got to have a threshold workout. Mm-hmm. You've got to know how to you know get your volume period you know and 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 the complexity becomes i suppose as soon as, as soon as you start involving equipment it gets even more complex you know and it's like, well, well oh, and that's I... it and you know running is running uh, you know, yeah you so, put your shoes on uh, but when you're talking about i yeah. it, it, it's interesting I'll, I'll invoke john holly here one time we're both exercising and he's riding on a stationary bike watching the u.s men's olympic marathon trials and mm. i'm flitting around the gym lifting mm. pushing you know doing all this mm-hmm. and he says to me he goes i don't know how you do that he goes i get bored and i'm like you sat on a station yeah. and watched yeah, exactly. a marathon trial i'm like <laughs> but no, uh, no, no. Yeah, I, 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 get, I totally get that because i could sit in a chair and watch a marathon trial so. yeah well it, it, and it's so not that play, but, but, yeah. but i mean i i think the point is is that you're boring, right no. to, to no. the to the point a lot of people get confused. You know, what should I do? How much should I do? So mm-hmm. we've begun to try and sort of coach people, particularly the older people in the facility we have, to use effort as a guide. And, and so, you know, rating a perceived exertion. At the end, are you at a 10 out of 10 and in the red zone? Mm-hmm. I don't need you to be there, but I'd like it if you could get to a 9 out of 10 uh, in the yellow or in the orange or an 8 out of 10 in the yellow. Yeah. And they go, oh, well, how will I know? I said, keep doing it. You, you'll, you'll get a sense. And at the end, and they're doing that eighth one, and they're like, I could probably do a couple of more. And I'm like, you know, so that becomes the repetitions you have in reserve. And I'm like, you're good. You, you don't need to do those two more. Like, I don't, I don't need a spotter to help you with that last yeah, one yeah, and yeah. do this sort of thing. But if you're working at about an eight or nine out of 10, you, you're getting a lot of, the benefit that you want and the analogy i always use is you dip a cloth in water and you squeeze it and the first turn a lot of water comes out Mm -hmm. and then you squeeze a little more a little less and then you squeeze in and then so on the fifth turn the cloth's turning in on itself and less and less water is coming out i like like, that one you've got the benefit right you've Mm. you've got on the steep part of the curve i'm like rest i'm like you know we're not going to turn you into some you know world record holding power lifter but i want you to have a better quality of life i said i'm pretty sure most of that comes with hitting that 
kind of sweet spot of you know seven mm-hmm. or eight or nine out of ten. Uh, and every now and again, maybe you do the ten out of ten. Like it's and that's that maybe shares some parallels with you know the Marty Gabala hit sort of. Every now and again, it's good to push the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Don't need to do it every day, but it's not a bad idea. That's good. It's funny writing a perceived exertion came up again because we I had Samuel um, Macora. Oh, Macora, on, yeah, sure. It, no, very different different uh, concept. But mm-hmm. but during that, I said how David Costell would would you know back in eighty nine when I did my masters there, he'd be um, he liked the RPE because he said it brings together all the you know your lactate, your heart rate, your breathing. It brings it all together, and and it's just come up again, which hadn't really come. Yeah, up no, in, it, it's a. Uh, it's a it's a simple concept, but yeah, I, I I agree a hundred percent. It's this talking to this topic, everything at some point, you know, failure or you know, momentary muscular failure, fatigue, whatever you want. It's it means that you, you know, if I go there, then you know, I'm definitely done. Mm-hmm. And I don't need you to go there, but come close. And and, and effort is a as a and perceived exertion is a wonderful way of gauging. Uh, you'd probably find sure. the research would show that as well that if you did you know uh, you'd get most of your gains probably at an rp of seven out of ten anyway and then a bit I, more I, at eight and a bit more at nine yeah I, I would think so again that's for the 80 percent who are doing no weightlifting at exactly. all and the novices and everything you know you get more experienced i get it like i'm 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 never going to suggest um you know everybody train that way and use it all the time but it's a very useful guide and I think it simplifies a lot of the, you know, people say free weight, heavy or, or free weight, uh, machine weight. And I'm like, actually doesn't matter. Like your muscle doesn't know the difference. It, it, it's not mm-hmm. like, you know, unless you're doing something very specific and, and then of course, you know, if you want to get good at, you know, to use the national football, like the NFL combine test as an example, then you train for the combine. You, you don't, <laughs> Mm-hmm. practice lifts that aren't done in the combine you you just do 225 pounds on a bench press for repetitions you know a good mm-hmm. score on that used to be like 10 now guys are doing 50 no. so it's not it's, it's not a test of strength anymore it's a test that's endurance for goodness sake so that's true that's true well actually just because you've touched on that there's there's sometimes a bit of confusion about you know, muscular endurance versus endurance endurance. And do you want to just explain that a little bit and even, you know, strength versus, because even the definition of strength, people don't quite, quite get it. Do you want to just say strength versus endurance, muscular endurance? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, 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 the old world, not old. And I think that it it was that there was a strength endurance continuum and, you know, at one end of it, it was the heaviest weight that you could lift one time, let's say, mm-hmm. or, or you couldn't even, you tried as hard as you, but you couldn't lift it. So it's, it, that, that will be isometric. Like you're trying to produce force, but your muscles not getting shorter. You can't push the yeah. bar off your chest or over your head or whatever it is. Uh, and then at the other end is something so light that you can do it seemingly forever, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, somewhere in there, the closer to the things you can do forever, that's endurance-like activity, and you get more mitochondria, more capillaries. You tend to get your cardiovascular system into play. And at the other end, it, it requires you know neuromuscular coordination. You got to activate all your muscle fibers, and um, at some point, you're you're generating high forces that would never be part of the endurance end because those are very light forces turning. Uh, crank on a bike for example but 
some people are very good at doing that and doing it at a very high level and bringing it up to um, you know, ridiculous levels of oxygen uptake and other people tend to be very good at, at generating high forces and lifting heavy things. Um, I tend to think that natural selection would favor the people that were fitter but there are some people, and you know, we know this, uh, we've done enough training studies and just natural phenomenons of nature, people who lift weights and uh, they get strong and they get strong fast. And you know, some of them, not all of them, they get big. They, they just grow muscle like, and, and it's almost like you can watch them get bigger. Um, and you know, huh. thank mom, thank dad. And, uh, and the environment and everything else. And, uh, you know, you're a weightlifter, you're a, you're a runner. That's exactly. the way it goes. Actually, the muscle endurance, I just remembered, I, I just pictured seeing a video years and years and years ago. So Sebastian Coe, as you, I think yeah. you would know, was, you know, 1500 yeah, yeah. meter, 800, yeah. 1500 meter. Absolutely. Uh, gold medalist and the Olympics world record holder. Yeah. I saw a video of him back then. I was like, what is he doing? Because I, I just thought the gym was where you do, you know, eight to 12 reps. He was mm -hmm. doing leg press. Um, he was doing 40 or 50 or maybe even 100 um, yeah. leg presses. So just, yeah. you know, naturally that's, it's, uh, it's not trying to get explosive speed, yeah. a force, but just yeah. endurance at a weight, you know, that's harder than he would normally do sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I think probably when you and I were, were in school and we were like, I was told, you know, when, when we were getting training for rugby, it was, a, it was all about fitness and it was, you know, you had to move around and, and be ready to go for 80 minutes at a stretch. And there was a little bit of, you know, physical contact, obviously mm -hmm. strength was an issue, but it was, we, we trained for fitness and mm -hmm. yeah. then this sort of strength became part of it. And, you know, a lot of runners, I'm sure were told don't lift weights. It'll just make you slower. And the interesting part is that, you know, some, you know, there's a, a watershed paper, I remember in the Journal of Applied Physiology around, you know, even 5,000 meter runners who did some weightlifting got biomechanically more efficient. And so mm -hmm. their oxygen cost of running at a certain pace dropped a little bit, but, you know, Andy Jones has given the example enough times, a little bit multiplied by a long mm -hmm. distance means a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that, we, you know, people begun to realize is that, you could be fit and that was good. And if you're a big guy and you were fit, even better. Uh, but if you're a big guy and you were fit and you were strong and you could, you had power, you could generate force quickly all of a sudden. And, you know, so no problem if you're a front row or a second row or back row it was when those guys started showing up in the, in the centers and then on the wing. And I was like, holy cow, these, yes. you know, Joan, Jonah Lomo will be the prototypical Ooh. Oh, my favorite. Big man winger who was strong, oh. ran fast, and oh. just. You know. I just got to shiver yeah. up my spine because I, I, I'm, I'm actually a New Zealander. So, Jonah Lomi played yeah. rugby for New Zealand, as you know. Yeah. Holy mackerel. I still have a yeah. DVD. I actually don't have a DVD player anymore, but I've got a DVD yeah. of Jonah Lomi my mum gave me. The wow. highlight, like he was, he, he just broke the mold. He, he was the yeah. guy that combined all of the things. And I think, begin you know, for me anyway, as a physiologist to think like, wow, like you can be big and, and fast and, and fit. And you know, yeah. all of a sudden you put all of that in and, and now, you know, I don't know who it is in, in what sport, but there are a lot of examples of athletes who have mastered the ability to, to combine all of those things into one package. 
football NFL linebackers are a prototypical. Mm. They're they're big, they're strong, they're fast. You know, it's crazy. Actually, just that point there about the five thousand meter runner during during strength training. Yeah. I guess my old fashioned thinking there was was that that would be for injury prevention mainly. But you're saying it does actually uh make you a little bit more efficient i wonder if you know just, how just to works. touch it's it's not a huge effect like i said it, but it was enough to improve the um the running economy of those individuals oh. I, I but I, I i don't disagree at all with the injury prevention injury. and i think that that probably goes and you know you could get keith Barr on here and talk about connective mm. tissue properties and um maybe not the the muscle so much but definitely the uh, ligament tendon uh, issues and everything else that go along with that. And I think that that's probably where a lot of uh, runners and, and, and that sort of thing would say, I have issues with this, do a little weight training, all of a sudden you find some of those issues tend to settle down. So and I guess it's also, it's easy to see with cyclists where, you know, the movement they're doing is, you know, really burns your quads. You, you feel yeah. like if I was a bit stronger, I could go harder. It, it yeah. really, you could see that with cyclists, right? And it would make sense almost that each contraction would be less, you know, close to your maximum, which has to help, right? Right. All right. Now, I know people are probably going to be keen for us to talk about protein, and it is sure. uh, part of it. Um, I've, I've actually, a thing I've had in my head for a long time, and I think I tweeted about it at one stage, and you may have liked it as well, and it, and it may be totally wrong, but I think it's a good place to start is I, when I learned, and this is, again, this is like 1986 to 1989 was my undergrad. I learned, you know, that 0.8 grams per kilogram per day of yeah. protein is what people need. And then, then the paper came out. I can't remember who it was, classic. So they said 1.2 to 1.7 grams per mm -hmm. kilogram per day. Yeah. Um, if you're an athlete, maybe 1.2 at the endurance end and 1.7 at the yeah. strength end. And then, and then it was like, hang on, but the average American gets 1.5 grams per kilogram per day anyway yeah. in their diet. Yeah. And the people that exercise more are going to eat more, yeah. unless you're in the Herman Ponce school, which I had him on. But, you know, generally you're going to eat more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so then I'm like, hang on, doesn't everyone get enough? Okay. And I've seen yeah. you've tweeted about that sometimes where, where um, anyway, so why don't you tell us about that? <laughs> Why don't you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, so I think you, you, you know, uh, you and I, we were, we were probably around the same, same mm -hmm. age when we were hitting undergrad and grad. Um, yeah. When I went the first, when I did, did my master's, I worked with Mark Tarnopolsky and it was probably Mark Tarnopolsky or Peter Lemon's papers that you were reading nitrogen balance in athletes. And, and they've actually found the higher requirements for protein were endurance athletes. And everybody was like, well, what are you talking about? That's crazy. Uh, but endurance athletes, you know, they burn a lot of fuel, right? And even though protein is a small amount of the fuel that they burn, um, a small amount multiplied by a lot of endurance exercise, you begin to burn protein. You begin to, so your needs for protein. So uh, it's probably about 1.7 uh, grams for the endurance athletes, and about 1.2 for the lifters. Oh, now the lifters were yeah, okay. big. Mm -hmm. really big uh, bodybuilders and we're in a very high state of training. And when you look at their bare sort of needs, I think that's probably right. I think those messages are probably right. I think the, uh, and it's a subtle difference to understand the difference between need and then what you can take in to optimize your adaptation. 
Um, and the two are, are, well, one is ostensibly anyway, easier need to measure than optimization. And it's, it's hard to sort of know where need becomes, you know, optimization becomes just, you know, more and more protein and you're not getting anything back. Um, you know, fast forward through probably about two decades worth of research. And I was convinced that, you know, protein requirements were definitely up here and, you know, people needed to pay attention to timing and all kinds of things. And, you know, things change in science. People tend to get upset when um, you change your mind, but uh, that's the way that science works. And I wouldn't be a good scientist if I didn't mm-hmm. look at some of our own data and sort of say, you know what, here's the deal. Um, protein adds a little bit to muscle mass gain. How much it adds is, is trivial. Uh, most of the gains that you get come from going to the gym and, and, and lifting weights. Protein adds a thin slice on top. Uh, you know, that's how what much... Meat, a thin slice of meat rather than... Yeah, yeah, well, that's people it. People want to have thin... steaks every two minutes, yeah? <laughs> a thin slice on top. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and um, that's the evidence. I mean, that's the, 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 there are the data. I, I think when you look at the endurance question, uh, I think it's even probably a thinner slice. And to your point, if these people are matching their energy intake with their energy expenditure, which you know they are, unless they're trying to lose weight, uh, then even if they're eating a, a, a you know a standard sort of mixed diet, they're they're getting enough protein. Um, and I, I I had a uh, I was on a podcast with Simon Hill and talking to. Uh, Chris Gardner at Stanford and we were both sort of I think Chris was like we don't need that much protein and I was like no we don't and he was sort of like right <laughs> so it's said, like a debate you know yeah, yeah. And, he, and he makes the point and I think it's a valid one is that most um, you know mo- most North Americans are are getting enough I think uh, the only population I worry about and and now with a focus on aging is, is older people um, who I, we, we now know, and, you know, Luke Van Loon and, and uh, Phil Atherton, Blake Rasp, anybody that studies older people will tell you that they become resistant to the normal anabolic effects of protein, much like, you know, aging and insulin resistance, if you want to draw an analogy. And so you probably either need higher amounts of protein or better quality protein to make up for that. Or... The other, the only other degree of freedom that you have is be as active as you can for as long as you can, because I'm, I'm certain that some of that anabolic resistance, because we can make it happen in young people by like immobilizing one of their legs, it become, it looks, it looks older. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the disuse is clearly a part of the anabolic resistance, but I mean, I think Mike in the 70 year old cusp is probably right. I think 70 and 75. And then pick your favorite theory of aging. Things just begin to unravel a little bit. And it's not that you still can't do good for yourself. It becomes hard, you know, I don't, mitochondrial dysfunction, telomere shortening, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you name it, right? Uh, loss of proteostasis. I mean, you know, yep. pick your favorite theory. Um, but up and until then, you can make some, you know, you can keep yourself in pretty good shape for sure. So again, with the pro, the sort of resistance you're talking about, as you say, it's like the insulin resistance. But you're saying, again, if you're contracting the muscle, then you're getting increased. Uh, well, I know is it is it Goma? Uh, you may have done the studies as well. Where you, M- you, mTOR, you, mTOR activation. 
Yeah. So when you exercise, you increase, yeah, you increase the protein synthesis rate for like 48 right. hours or something. Yeah. Increase. Yeah, I mean, that's, we, mm -hmm. yeah, we, we showed that for, you know, and that was in young people, big volume of exercise, but happens for two days. And so, you know, the, the obsession around the timing of food, mm -hmm. the guys with the shakers in the gym, uh, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, be, you know, um, I, I should look this up because I quote it so many times, but there's a group that wrote, you know, we used to talk, remember the, the, the window? The window. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, the window. So the anabolic window, people just say, oh, I need, I need, to the, I need the anabolic window. And they, and they talk about the anabolic garage door. Like it's, it's open, it's huge. And it's open for a long time, you know, just relax, have a oh. walk, walk home, have a meal and, and everything. So, exactly and then people right. go supplements. What about supplements? I said, supplements are convenient. And that's sort of where the, you know, and, and they are pure forms of protein. So if you don't want to worry about the carbs and the fat and Maybe, but then all the other nutrients that, that exist in food, supplements are okay. But are they necessary? Not at all. Not at all. No. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I just, I partly want to get you to repeat it over and over, but maybe at the end, we'll do takeaway messages um, <laughs> because it must drive I, I, me nuts. I, I, it drives me nuts. Upset, you know, a long time I had a lot of supplement people going, yeah, that's Stu Phillips. He's talking, he's great. And then now I'm like, supplements aren't necessary. They're like, I hate that Stu Phillips guy, you know? And then, Everybody else is like, but you said for some, I said, science, you know, this, this is the science. This is, this mm -hmm. is what it is. And, and you know, That's I right. know a lot of, look, not everybody agrees. Like, I'm, you know, I don't want to pretend like I, I'm it and, 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 you know, mm -hmm. nobody else opposes me. There's, there's other people who, who disagree. They're like, they're certain that it's 2.2 grams or one gram per pound. And, you know, you, even your data. And I said, well, even my data, uh, and I said, so we've done two meta-analyses now and, we still see nothing, you know, so, uh, or a very thin. It's, it's, it's very similar benefit. when I have um, people talking about carbohydrate metabolism. Yeah. You know, we have the same thing with, you know, oh, you got to have all these grams of carbohydrate per, yeah. per hour per day to maximize yeah. your glycogen. And yeah. we have the same sort of discussions. Like, like if you're exercising like once a day, even if you're exercising really hard, do you need to have like maximum glycogen at every millisecond? You don't. Yeah. yeah. You just have yeah. normal food. Yeah, And um, I remember I had a participant once and we worked out that his 25% of his dietary intake was carbohydrate drinks, you know, just, just packing them in because he wanted to yeah. have it before the exercise, during yeah. exercise, yeah. after the exercise. Now, yeah. now, as you say, it's the same now with protein, right? Oh, do you have your shake? Um, you know, you do a yeah. search, you know, do you yeah. have your shake before the exercise, during the exercise, straight after, like within a millisecond. So you're actually shaking it just before your last set. Yeah. Okay. Interset, interset, you know, just to prevent protein. This is the, the uh, for a while it was, you know, uh, but still is time restricted feeding, intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing a day and, and people were, would worry about the proteolysis, like the break protein breakdown that would happen on the day when they weren't eating. So they would say, so I, I take, uh, I, I just ingest some branch chain amino acids. So I'm like, so you're you're not fasting then and they go and and in the u.s there's uh -huh. an fda quirk that on the on the label it, it says you know with amino acids it says zero calories and they're like well they don't have any calories and i'm like well, you know that's a label quirk mm -hmm. of course they have calories yeah. but you know you're probably getting a rise in insulin and you know what i mean insulin is like the it's like the you know the devil these days because you know 
well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, protein gives an insulin response too. Well, you know, and, <laughs> and yeah, people have sort it's of like, a mild, you know, visceral reaction. So <laughs> yeah, it's just such a pity that everything's become so commercialized, I guess, you know, that that they think about supplements, uh, sports drink, even even I did a study during my um my uh, my uh ph oh, anyway i did a study and i won't say the company but they they um they sponsored the study and i you know used their carbohydrate drink but then i wrote an article saying how 99 percent of people don't need carbohydrate drinks because they're just going to the gym they're just working out 45 minutes an hour your glucose isn't going to drop that quickly yeah um, and if you do need it, just make it yourself. Just get sugar and water and maybe a bit of cordial, a bit of salt. And then the company rang me like three times in like a space of two yeah. hours. What are you doing? You know? Heretical, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it, you say that too. And it's, it's, again, it's been a evolution of my understanding. And just by hanging around with, this is the fun part about, you know, the job that, you know, we do, right, is you get to meet a lot of people and you get to, just through osmosis, listen to really smart people mm-hmm. talk about things. And, and even though it's not your area, just because you're there. Um, and, you know, I had the pleasure of sitting in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is, you know, it's not a bad place to hang yeah. out, right? And being part of the IOC consensus statement that they, it was the first time the IOC actually said, you know, yeah, sports supplements, let's talk about them. And okay. you, you, you shake the, you know, you shake the jar and you're waiting for, you know, what comes out and you pull out, uh, oh, creatine and mm-hmm. then sodium bicarbonate, like baking soda, right? And mm-hmm. you're like, well, we've known about that for about 70 years, you know, uh, caffeine. Oh, you know, <laughs> a carbohydrate sports drink, but, but only a little bit. <laughs> Protein powders, but only a little bit. And then a- after yeah. that, like, man, the list falls off really quickly and like it it just it defies logic to think that Ron Mon says it very well right uh if there's something that sounds too good to be true it probably is That's and true. if it is too good to be true it's probably banned right so <laughs> okay um, I, I can't put it any simpler but it 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 it, it really irks people to, to hear that as if there is some unlocked supplement that is going to release something from the muscle that is you know just heretofore been undiscovered and you know uh and again like you said the main thing is to do the resistance training you know yeah that's that's you know we said before we came on air you said you know i stole your idea or something about you were thinking you know when i retire i can do a (laughs) podcast but you know what i've i've been contacted several times and i don't even have that many you know views and things yet um people wanting me to to flog amino acids um during the well, podcast sure. yeah you know? yeah absolutely but could you imagine you would just go crazy like you yeah. running yeah. a podcast yeah. you would get yeah. so yeah. many people wanting you to do that yeah yeah no no, no. i and, and and look yeah i mean it's fair fair of me to say like we've done some work where and, and i have i have two patents and mark tarnopolsky has a company and they own the patents and everybody's like oh look phillips is sold out to the supplement company and you know, you're probably doing this podcast from Tahiti and this is just a put on shirt. And I'm like, you know, I have a good job and I enjoy my job, but it's not like I'm making any money. In fact, it's zero dollars, zero point zero dollars. Right. And, Same. you know, uh, so people have made a, a huge issue over that. But in the context where we're uh, or Mark's company is selling them, I'm OK, because it's always in combination with exercise. And 
yeah, the mm. supplement contains creatine. Go figure. Uh, there you go. Well, funnily enough, creatine is one that probably does have some evidence. Yeah, that. Uh, yeah, I think that that's yeah, it's yeah. probably it, it's like the A grade supplement. Like it's yeah. it, it came. Eric Holtman, and you know he did a lot of great work mm -hmm. with it. Um, you know Peter Hespel's group, a ton of great work. Um, and time and time again, yeah, it, it, there's something there, and it works. And now we're beginning to see things like cognitive benefits. And mm -hmm. you know Tarnopolsky is the person who probably yeah. he 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 puts all of his neuromuscular disease patients on that supplement. So I have a chat to him because I actually asked him to come on the podcast, but I haven't had any luck yet. Um, <laughs> All right, I'll so, push him for you. Don't there worry. There you go. So you mentioned um, protein quality. So with with aging, yeah. and, and the natural question yeah. then becomes: so another big one is, do you need to be getting your protein from animal sources, or uh, you know, is plant based diet okay, et cetera? Can we just yeah. talk about that one a little bit? Yeah. So this is another one um, that my opinion has shifted over the years. You asked me this twenty years ago, and and I would have given you the standard line. Uh, animal source proteins are higher, higher quality. Uh, they've got more essential amino acids. Their digestibility is better. They're, they're better for you. They're better for muscle growth and everything else like that. 15 years ago, I'm like, yeah, pretty, yeah, I'm holding true to that one. 10 years ago, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I think there might be, and we began to get evidence that maybe it wasn't the case. You do a few systematic reviews, no difference between animal and plant protein in terms of muscle mass gain. We collaborated with a group in Brazil. We compared complete vegan vegetarians using soy protein. Oh, okay. So the best plant protein out there, no difference versus omnivores. Um, now in you know 2022, it's a situation where uh, 23 now. Uh, it's a situation where the amount of products, plant-based, uh, that are available uh, and uh, and processed plant-based foods. I'll agree with that. Um, that are the quality issue is is a non-issue, mm -hmm. and. There are more now plant protein concentrates or isolates. So the digestibility issue is completely uh, removed uh, that actually in our hands, they're on par with animal-based proteins with respect to stimulating muscle protein synthesis, um, you know, promoting muscle growth. There, there's really much less difference. So I, I, I used to think that that was a big deal Mm -hmm. uh, I think less and less it's, it's an issue. Uh, I think you do have to be a little bit more judicious about how you pick your foods, but then lots of colleagues and friends, vegans say, it's really not that hard. And, and I, I, I have to take their word for it because it's not how I plan my diet. I, I'm not, okay. I'm omnivorous. So I, I, I worry less about the quality of the protein that I eat. But I think if you're you're vegan now, it's much easier to be a vegan, even if you're an older person mm -hmm. um, and, and still be in pretty good shape. Add exercise to that. And look, it's hard to argue with the observational data of people who subsist on purely vegan vegetarian diets, seven-day Adventists, and mm -hmm. a lot of other lifestyle factors, people living in blue zones. And yes, I get it, a lot of other genetic factors they tend to optimize their health. And, um, you know, again, I know I'm going to upset a lot of people by saying that, but I think the differences are, if they're there, they're pretty small. 
Um, if they are bigger than people claim, then it's probably not to do with the quality of the protein, at least in my opinion, but more to do with a lot of animal source of protein that we eat comes along with a lot of other nutrients, calcium, mm -hmm. iron, B12, zinc, that we don't get or vegans maybe struggle to get. And so that may be, if there's any advantage, it, that's the biggest one, I think. What about, what about the growth? Maybe this is beat up, but what about the growth factors they put in some of the meat? Yeah, well, so I think that's that's stretching it, uh, is it? Uh, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah. yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, that's a, it's that's probably a beat a, up. It probably doesn't end up in the meat, even uh, if they give it you to you know, and, and people, yeah. people talk about that, but I, again, the, the answer to that question is always just show me some data, like show me some decent exactly. data. And the dairy, okay. the dairy, um, folks have done the best comparison of that with you know, cows that were given uh, hormones to increase lactation for longer. Um, th th there's no growth factor that ends up in, in the milk. But that's the point. Yeah. Okay. It, the RBST, you know, uh, anti-RBST uh, bovine somatotropin uh, lobby in the United States has really beaten that down. And you're really looking at about, I, last I guess, I think it was about less than 10% of dairies in the US. And in Canada, you can't use it. I don't think you can use it in Australia or New Zealand okay. either. So cool. All right, so just to, just to tease that out a little bit there. So um, you were talking about the the isolates and things you can get, the soy isolates yeah, and things. Yeah. So so do you think just to take the next step, I guess it's just having normal food, just food, food, and and doing weight training. Do you feel like you would get the same adaptation, same strength, same um, increase in muscle mass if you're like a, a vegan? But again. Because I would have thought if they're eating beans and legumes and whatever, you'd get enough protein. Or is that, or is that not the case? Do you think you do need to be a bit careful here? Uh, yeah. I, 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 th I think it, it sort of comes down to, you know, most, most vegans that I know, and it's not like, it's like being an omnivore as well. Like you can be a good omnivore and eat very healthy omnivorously. Um, or you can be like, just like you can be, have yeah, a terrible yeah. diet and be an omnivore, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like most people do, um, you know, Western diets, whatever you want to call it, but uh, the Western eating pattern or, you know, food cafeteria pattern, it, it's mm -hmm. rife, it's everywhere. If there's an enemy in any of this, it, it's, it's not, I don't think it's with animal source protein versus plant source protein. It's the processed food that's in the middle. It tastes great. It, it, it's hyper palatable. Uh, it's got, you know, uh, a mouthfeel and a, and a salt and a, and a fat. And you, you're like, oh, I mean, the expression Moorish is, is mm. widely known in the food industry. This is what you want to layer into a cookie, a bar, uh, mm. you know, you name it. Um, and there are thousands of new processed food products every year. Uh, so I, you know, when I talk to athletes and they sort of, what should I eat and everything, I, you know, I, I think I go everywhere I go in the world, and that's been a privilege of having the position I've had. You go to the grocery store and they're all laid out the same. I know in Oz it's exactly the same as that around the outside of the store. So usually dairy, meat, produce, or, mm -hmm. in, you know, in some order, stay out there and, and man, like, you'll be in good, exactly. you, good shape. Go down the middle of the aisle, the chips, the biscuits, that you know, chocolate. everything. Yeah. Don't forget chocolate. The, the, I'm a bad man the, the, about chocolate. Well, mm -hmm. I, I, and I, if there's a kryptonite in my world, Glenn, it's chocolate. So <laughs> let, let's be clear. We can we can all shake hands on that mm -hmm. one. But 
you know, I, I don't think um, anybody is is losing something by uh, it, by being vegan, and and especially like the trade off if it if it's the trade off for the health benefits are associated with more fiber and everything else that's associated with being vegan. We will leave the mm-hmm. environmental and everything issue aside. Um, as opposed to, oh, you're, you're giving up, you know, some amount of muscle mass. If you're lifting weights, that argument is, is carries no weight at all. Wow. It, like it's like, if you're lifting weights, you're getting 90, 95% of the benefit. And, and to say that you're, you're, there's something you're not getting because you're not eating animal source protein. Um, I, I think that that's a, that's a complete, you know, there's no evidence to show that. So. Yeah. And as you say, there's so much junk that people eat. And I know uh, Raul Beskos, he was my postdoc at one stage. He did a yeah. study to look at, I think it was nitrates and vegetarians. And it ended up, there was no difference between the vegetarians and the non-vegetarians because the vegetarians yeah. ate crap. He assumed that the, the vegetarians would have more nitrate in their diet. You can, you can be a bad vegetarian. Exactly. You know, I, 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 I not to stereotype, mm. but uh, I have done my fair share of looking at, you know, diet mm. and food records. And uh, man, you know, some cross-country runners who, for whatever reason, they swear off eating, you know, I, I don't want to eat red meat, I don't want to eat this. So they would have, you know, uh, like a, you know, peanut butter sandwich with, uh, with a diet Coke. And I'm like, they're, they're like, I'm vegan. And I'm like, you are, that's still, uh, less calories than you need. Uh, peanut butter is not a good source of protein. Uh, and the white wonder bread that you're eating and, and the diet Coke, like, you know, I mean, you actually do yourself some benefit if you ate a full sugar Coke probably because you need the energy, but, and then they wonder why they get a stress fracture or they're anemic, you know, and I, you know, so you can be, you can be a crappy vegan, just like you can be a crappy omnivore and, exactly. and not to be virtuous about the, uh, the choice. I understand it for a lot of reasons beyond just the food choice itself. But um, I think the same truism applies. That's the other funny thing that you're saying about having a diet Coke, because you see now these diet sports drinks. It's like, hang on, I thought the whole idea is to, to get the sugar in there. <laughs> And you know, the other thing I just thought of is yeah. our Oreos. I don't want to give Oreos a hard time. They yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're actually vegan. Yeah, yeah, label, yeah, 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 yeah. You could go your whole day. You eat, uh, you eat uh, nothing but uh, protein bars and, and, and Oreos and, uh, and you're vegan. I mean, you're lacto because probably the, the protein in the protein bar is, is dairy derived, but you know, you're a vegan. Uh, you, uh-huh. You're not eating healthy, but, but you're a vegan. All right. So if we just talk about um, the way, some of the ways you've studied these things. So, so naturally what we've been talking about is the end point, which is great because mm. sometimes people want to do a study and they look at, uh, for example, uh, muscle protein synthesis. You could be looking at this, yeah. it's up or yeah. down, but you're not actually looking at the end point of whether there's right. any difference in strength right. or size, like a month later or whatever. So we've actually yeah. been talking about the end point, but then why don't you just talk a bit about um, the, the methods you use and do the endpoints and the methods match up. So, you know, your muscle yeah. protein synthesis, if it's up yeah. in the first few hours after exercise, yeah. Yeah. does it, does it always then translate to the, if you kept doing that, whatever it is, supplement or different way of doing, you know, a different amount of weight training, does it usually end up matching with the endpoint as well? Yeah. So uh, the way I explain this is that looking at muscle protein synthesis 
uh, in terms of you feed a protein, you get a synthetic response is much like looking uh, at the glycemic response to a, a mm -hmm. type of carbohydrate. It's an, it's an index of the availability in the case of the glycemic index of the sugar, the glucose. Um, we get a phenotype big response in that we get muscle protein synthesis. So that would be say muscle glycogen storage. I think the parallels are pretty easy to grasp. Um, the question of what, what that does then to, to performance is, you know, that there's a lot of steps in between, um, but it gives you an idea of what's going on. We spend years measuring muscle protein synthetic responses and my sort of, you know, again, programmed understanding was that became muscle accrual, muscle accrual will be greater um, lo and behold, you get better and better methods. We now use deuterated water. We study people over weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And the measures don't quite play out quite as much, but they're not bad. But then when you do the training study and you leave people and you bring them in to train, but you're not watching what they eat too much and they're doing all of their regular things, sleep, stress, blah, 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 blah. And things tend to come out in the wash. Like it, 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 this, the protein synthetic response definitely exaggerates, if you like, the potential for the muscle to beget muscle growth. Uh, the medium term deuterated water response, I'm a little bit more confident, but the training study is the only way to do it. And, and, and in that sense, then there's not a great correlation between the acute protein synthetic response and uh, the long-term outcome. So uh, it hurts me to say that we mm. studied it for years. Uh, I think, you know, I, I still like the mechanistic stuff. I still think that we're now, we're now sort of re going through uh, another round of MPS studies with mostly with plant-based proteins. Um, but the plant-based proteins are, are putting themselves up against, you know, animal-based proteins. So if whey is the ostensible gold standard, highest quality, easily, easily digested, What's a pea protein going to do? What's a rice protein going to do? Okay. What's a, and, and there are some that, that, that are not as good. What does that mean from, you know, from that standpoint for the longer term outcome? That's really a question that remains to be answered. The only people for whom, again, I, I would sort of say that there's some relevance to are, are, are older people. And that's, again, related to this issue of anabolic resistance. But again, if you get an older person and, and, you know, I'll quote Mike Joyner on this since you've had him on the show. Good, mm. good friend. Really, really great guy. Um, and he said that exercise is the forgiver of many sins. So, you know, if it's a sin to eat a, you know, a vegan vegetarian diet, then just just exercise because it makes the muscle more anabolically sensitive. It's really the thing that's and I've had this argument with a number of people. Um, I quote Jack LaLanne. Uh, all the time, you know, um, exercise is king, nutrition is queen, put them together, you've got a kingdom. And they, and, mm. and, and now I've got Shona Holson to quote an, a famous Australian telling mm. me, and sleep is the, is the prince. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. Um, you know, but, but my point is, is that ac exercise, and I do believe this, like it's the heavy hand in terms of driving the health benefit, not that diet isn't, um, it just, I think you can out exercise poor, relatively poor dietary habits. I don't want to get so far as you can say you can outrun a diet, you know, a bad diet, but you know, that's been the rallying cry for years for people to say that it's all about weight loss. And, and, you know, if that's the lens, then 
you know, you could learn more from Herman Ponser than you could from, uh, from me for sure. Yeah, that's an interesting one because I saw um, Mike. You mentioned Mike Joyner. He wrote an article. I think it was with you, right? About yeah, it was um, it, he and I wrote it. Yeah, outrunning yeah, yeah. a bad yeah. diet. And the funny thing, I yeah. started reading the just in the abstract. It was talking about to do with weight loss, but I, I guess I, I must have just got that wrong because I always just thought it, for health. The, uh, yes, the title was outrunning mm. bad diet, like, like beyond weight loss. So yeah, everything yeah. other than weight loss, okay. Um, exercise is remarkably good for you. Like it, it, the problem with you know the the weight loss only argument, which is what really drove the anti carb high fat sentiment that was you know in vogue. I think it had its heyday, may, may still be around in certain things, was, was basically, this is the only way you can lose weight, or it's the only way that I found to lose weight. Yeah, okay. it, still, it still works through thermodynamics, and, and, and you know, Ponser would, would definitely agree with that. The, the problem had been is then, like, so you can't out-exercise a bad diet became the rallying cry for, so why, sort of almost like, why bother exercising? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, my, my point and Mike's point in the, in the paper was let's forget about, you know, the, the sort of mono lens on weight loss as the outcome and the driver of health and talk about everything else that, that exercise ah, does. Geez. So. so I must've blown that. Cause I just looked the, the abstract. Well, if thought, you read oh, the title in the abstract, you, you, and the idea was just to fish people in with, with the title. Right? Ah, Cause then I thought oh, I, just I made the mistake. Uh, yeah, okay. I made the mistake of posting it on social, reposting it on social media recently. And, you know, you, like the, yeah, let's just say the hatred um, was, was vitriolic. What oh, are really? you talking about? And I'm like, read the paper. I can't read the papers and paywall and everything. And I'm like, there's lots of ways <laughs> wow. to get the paper that, that aren't. That actually happened that to me. Don't include, yeah. Okay. yeah, that don't go through the paywall. So um, I, I hate to, that. I don't want to violate copyright by saying there's lots of ways to get exactly. the paper, but at least read the paper. Like, you Sorry. know, it, I think, you know, you know how everything today tells you how long it takes. I want to yeah. say it's a four, a four or five minute read. Okay. And it's not complicated language. Like it's actually written. Sorry, so I'm, I'm the same as them because I looked at it and I just because partly because I'm doing a, a podcast every week and I did three and I've got three and I've got two one another other one in two days time is sometimes I've actually am one of these people that just like reads the bottom you know the the last line of the abstract which is not good but but you might you must find like an and you know uh Twitter is bad Facebook's a little better Instagram is the worst uh TikTok is I think is out to lunch but for the proliferation, I call it the, the, the proliferation and then the subsequent dilution of expertise. Like there's so many experts oh out gosh. there and, and, and what people classify. I've done my research and I'm like, you know what? If you've done a lot of reading, that's research of a, of a sort. But, it, you know, like <laughs> when you're in the game and you're reading grants and you're re- reviewing papers and you're doing studies. So I have data from, from the hardworking crew of graduate students that I'm not it's not published yet but I know Hmm. and I'm talking about that and people go there's no data for that I'm like well actually there is or you know wait there will be uh like I I don't get out there and say stuff just (laughs) because there's that thing I can't remember the name of it but it's actually I googled it it's a some um uh it's the concept that the people that know less are more definitive about it 
and yeah, and, and yeah, also there's well, the one there's the one there's actually the one i'm thinking about is saying something that you throwing something out there without evidence is actually easier than saying something with evidence because then yeah, you can uh, back it up or something absolutely yeah. I, absolutely yeah. i mean there's 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 all sorts of names and logical fallacies that go into this stuff yes. but i mean it's uh so so i, I you know all, all i do and people you know, you, you probably appreciate this is that a lot of my colleagues, you know, they go, oh, like all the time you spend on social media. I'm like, I, I don't spend as much time as, you know, this guy here that like his life is social media. And uh, I said, I do it because I'm trying to promote good science. That's why I'm talking mm. to you. That's why I, mm -hmm. I value and spend my podcast time listening to your podcast. Right. So oh, thank you. But yeah, no, it's true. But mm. but you know, it, it, it's not what a lot of people want to hear. They, they 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 would have to climb out of their echo chamber, and uh, and and then you know, uh, it, it's an opportunity lost, and it's much easier to just consume on the surface and skip across and and subscribe to only what you believe, and that's that's the way things go. Okay, just bringing back to something I thought of earlier, I didn't say it. So that I've always thought about when you say how much amino acids, how much protein do you need in your diet. People tend to think, oh, you know, I'm doing this weight training. I need this uh, protein now, right? Which we've talked about the timing thing. But I also think about that you've got turnover, right? So remember, yeah. the thing the thing also would be like, you've got to have it in this meal. But, but as, you, as you say, I would have thought what's happening is you do the exercise, for example. Then you get the DNA, gets, you know, you get messenger RNA produced. Yeah. You get the transfer RNA. It goes yeah. out and goes, right, I need this amino acid. Oh, it's not yeah. there. Now that yeah. amino acid that's in the blood is floating around, not from just what you've eaten the last day or two, but from breaking down, turning over yeah. the protein. Yeah. You're going to be breaking it down. It's going in the blood, whatever. Is is that right? And then does that sort of throw, throw out the whole idea of this needing to have complementary proteins and having to have all the essential <laughs> amino acids in every meal? You know oh, what I mean? Like, yeah. Hmm. Uh, big, big question. Uh, I'll, I'll say this, and this is one thing that I don't think people talk about near enough, is that the, the gradient to charge a tRNA with an amino acid. So this is the pool of tRNA, like it's, it's like this. And then this is the free pool of amino acids. Like it's massive. Yeah. It's ma like, so there's always enough intracellular free amino acids to charge a tRNA. Oh, so you're sort so, of even inside the muscle cell. So I'm talking yeah, about it being floating absolutely. around the blood. Yeah, it doesn't okay. matter. I mean, yeah, okay. Marty Gabala would, you know, and in another life, he he talked about protein metabolism and amino acids and, you know, the anaporotic cycle, yeah, uh -huh. anaporosis and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I Occasionally, he does, in our grad course, we still do it. But he'll make the point that says that, you know, until you elevate blood amino acids, so you eat protein, that's the only time that you get an inward driving gradient for amino acids to be taken up into muscle. Every other time, it actually favors net efflux of amino acids. Mm -hmm. and, and, and as you know, most of what comes out of muscle isn't all of the amino acids. It's mostly alanine and glutamine, glutamine. Mm -hmm. nitrogen carriers, right? So uh, I think your point around the, the, the turnover is, you know, is any, is any uh, amino acid ever going to become rate limiting? Um, probably not. Uh, but what we've begun to understand now is that the key amino acid that for muscle anyway, turns protein synthesis on is leucine. Mm -hmm. And once you have that, it's like the process, you know, the, the light switch is flicked and the rest of the amino acids then are the supporting cast. Mm 
to continue the, the rate of protein synthesis, you, you probably do need inward flux into the muscle, despite that massive gradient that I, I talked about. But the okay. rest of the amino acids then are almost, I, I, I talk about them in a supporting cast mm -hmm. role rather than being drivers of. They're, they're bricks that are needed to be put into the wall. But at a certain point, even that process turns itself off. Like if it, if it didn't, then mm -hmm. all you need to do is eat protein and you, you get huge, right? And, and we know that doesn't happen. So there's some feedback that says, okay, it's time to shut this off, even when you're lifting weights. And that's why not everybody who lifts weights and eats a lot of protein gets massive. Uh, and the only way to circumvent that is, you know, is an anabolic steroid or some sort of preparation that removes the, the normal biological lid, which, which is in uh, this, you know, this chokes people to, to hear me say this, but it's a, it's a genetically programmed ceiling. Why, why would it be any different than any other biological phenomenon? Okay. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, right, you, so you probably had aspirations at some point of being a world-class runner, but at some point you realized, shit, mm -hmm. I, I just don't have the right size heart. I don't have, yep, you know, yep, yep and everything else and you 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 know you're just it, like you're above average but mm -hmm. you know uh so and it's the same with i'm actually a bit of untwisted about that to be honest but anyway that's uh, yeah, well so me too you can imagine injuries, my, medio yeah, my yeah. mediocre physiology I, I i wanted to be this and i realized <laughs> I, as my dad once said he goes son you know and plus when i played rugby it was an amateur game but it just became professionally said son he goes the size of these blokes playing over here now he said uh I'd, I'd start using your head a little bit more. So okay. <laughs> Instead of bashing your head against these big, oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, I just remembered I, I tried to make a bit of a comeback. Oh, that's another story. But anyway, the first tackle I did, I got knocked out. <laughs> well, it, my sons will tell you, they were very young, but they're, they're much older now, but they will tell you, I tried to make a comeback too. And I, uh, I, I not only uh, separated, but I dislocated oh. my my shoulder, and oh. they they learned a few new words that day. Was the uh, physio on the sideline popped it back in? <laughs> well, believe it or not, this was this was a guy who was who, who used to play international for Fiji, and then he <laughs> happened to be living in Melbourne, so he was just playing for the local team, you know. And that was my first tackle. Yes. Hey, um, well, now just 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 thinking about. You know, some of the bros might jump on something you said. So should they all race yeah. out and buy leucine? And they should all they all race out and have steroids. You know, because you, you sort of said that's the that's yeah the, yeah. You know, Look, uh, it was so you know mo most of all the things we've talked about apply with respect to protein and quality. Whey, leucine, mm -hmm. like it's it's tops. You you, know, you can't do any better. Um, people talk for a while about and, and to use the phrase that was vogue at the time about pimping out your food, like adding leucine to the top of it to kind of take it to the next level. And, you know, the mm -hmm. truth is, again, um, the process is, I like to use the dimmer switch analogy. So, you know, you can turn it on and then you can twist it a little bit more and then you can try and twist, but you can't make the light any brighter. So you can't turn mm -hmm. protein synthesis on more than a certain capacity. Like it just tops out at a certain level. Um, David Sabatini, he's got a lab at MIT really big guy in this area. Cestrin 2 is the protein that is the putative leucine binder that interacts with mTOR and relieves its inhibition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, once it's saturated, 
how can you how can you turn the light? You can't make protein synthesis. Well, you know, it's a beautiful thing. Anymore. You're talking about saturated. So remember your earlier one about squeezing out the sponge. You could say yeah. the same thing. You fill yeah. it up with water. They're not idle analogies, water. Glenn. They're not idle. <laughs> yeah, you fill it up with more water. It's your point. Your more. point is spot on. You're, you're spot on. Yeah. Like you can't. You just can't. You can't squeeze anymore. Uh, you know, anabolic okay. steroids. What they do is essentially. They, they take the lid off of all the negative feedback loop that is, that is there for a reason. And I mean, you know, reproductive tissue cancers um, like prostate cancer are driven by testosterone. So, you know, mm-hmm. treatment of, um, of um, prostate cancer is to put guys on hormone uh, ther- or basically hormone ablation therapy and knock their testosterone down. That yes. takes the cancerous growth driver away from the prostate so you can see the analogy going in the opposite direction saying and and you know and everybody's sort of oh i know a guy who took this and 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 this is sort of what debunks everything it's like the the one the smoker who lives to 95 so it's okay to smoke you know and i'm like not not the rule the exception and so take anabolic steroids you get bigger. The perils of them are, are very well documented. Uh, I won't talk about, you know, shrunken testicles or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing, but I'll talk about cancer and lots of other uh, issues and, you know, bodybuilding as a sport or an art, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think it's, it's well known when you get to the highest levels, the diabolical things those people do. It's, it's insane that any of them survive, to be honest with you. All right, now I'm going to stop. I've got these Twitter questions. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so we 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 um we exchanged some tweets this morning, and uh, uh, Henning Bacherhaga, my yes. uh, good friend uh, mm-hmm. in Germany, uh, was talking about you know, and, and I get asked a lot about um, what are the adverse effects of protein. And for years, you know, when I first started this, it was proteins would make your bones dissolve, and you know, because they create acidity and then uh-huh. acidity leaches calcium out of your bones and everything and the complete opposite is true so if as long as you've got calcium and vitamin d levels dialed in uh, protein is actually a bone supportive nutrient you know 40 percent of your bone mass is actually protein it's it's collagen but but it's mm-hmm. protein uh and then it was like okay so uh, and and that's been thoroughly debunked meta-analyses at the yin yang and the next one is protein causes your kidneys to fail uh, ourselves, other groups have looked for this evidence. So this is a, I'd want to say it's about a 50 year old hypothesis. Now a guy named Brenner, uh, came up with it and, and I stress hypothesis protein, uh, leads to urea production. Urea is a solute. Solutes need to be filtered more urea kidney sort of, you know, it's almost like it's fatigued and tired out and you lose mm. the functional units of your kidney. And then the evidence that often gets cited in support of that is that people with kidney failure are put on low protein diets and that prolongs their survival. But that's a reverse corollary, right? You can't Mm. say because, you know, the question is whether the protein caused the kidney failure in the first place. So when you look for evidence, observational or experimental, interventional, uh, there's no data, right? And, and I think then people say, well, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. And I'm like, you're right, but here we are 50 years after the hypothesis was made mm-hmm. and still searching for the 
smoking gun or what, whatever it is, the, the definitive piece of evidence that shows the causative role of protein in renal failure. In fact, these Mendelian uh, studies, randomization studies, and you know, I won't, don't know enough to, to say, uh, have actually shown it's, it's, it's the opposite, if it's anything. So I, I digress. So let's just say, I can, think I can put that one to bed. But Henning asked, and a lot of people ask these days about protein turning on mTOR and that then contributing to a reduction in longevity because longevity and overstimulation of the mTOR pathway, they're just not compatible. And so when you deprive it, uh, fruit flies all the way up to, I won't say primates because we've got conflicting data, but short-lived short inbred mammals, rats and mice, they live longer. Protein restrict, you get the same types of effects. So there are a lot of people talking about almost a, an anti-aging effect to do with protein restriction. Um, the problem is, is that in humans, when you look at the observational data that's out there, past a certain age, restriction of protein actually predicts and, and leads to frailty or is associated with frailty because of the muscle mass loss issue that we mm. talked about, the anabolic resistance. So, and then you look for protein and longevity studies, and of course they're observational. We haven't done the randomized control trial, but when you look at the observational data, it, it's all over the place. And I think the only truism that I can come up with is that um, plant-based protein, and I know I'm gonna get hate mail for this, is probably better in terms of longevity than animal-based protein. You know, so take away from that what you will. But certainly there's no human data showing that a lifetime of protein restriction, a la what is put into the, the uh, rat and mouse studies um, mm -hmm. is associated with an increased longevity. And you know, so uh, once again, there's some data that I'm involved with. Um, it's another group that did the majority of the analysis, but I'm the one who put them up to it. We've been trying to get it published for so long now, I, I think. <laughs> I think it's fair to say it's almost impressed um, that really turns a lot of this on its head. And, you know, it really debunks the idea that protein restriction, even before the age of 65, which certain scientists promote as being the sort of the turning point, if you want, um, it, it has no role in the promotion of the types of diseases that are supposed to be killing people associated with protein. The possible exception, and this is where, you know, I kind of draw a line because I think it's small, is that protein is pretty consistently associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. And that may be related to this whole branch chain amino acid signature, which Chris Newgard has promoted. Um, but whether it's causative or association, I, 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 I can't say. It's observational data, of course. So um, but let me say is that I, I'm really unconvinced that the short-lived inbred rodent data that primarily drives the thesis, uh, the protein restriction extends lifespan, is actually translatable to, to humans. And there's lots of examples actually, even outside of that with different species that show the, the, the opposite. So um, that that's... Sort of my take on, on it's a long answer to mm. which I think I got across in a few tweets yes. to Henning, and I think he he subscribes to it. Um, I just I'm not as convinced by this protein restriction theory 
um, as a, a lot of other people. Add exercise in, and I think you completely undo a lot of the work that's been done in in, uh, in rodents because it's not combined with exercise. Okay. And, and and I'm assuming most of the rodent studies, they're just sitting in a cage, they don't have a running wheel, so they're chronically... Yeah crazily and inactive the thing. And, and and even even the running wheel uh, part is that like that would be a start um mm. what about you know allowing them to climb up a a ladder and do it like it's it's resistive in nature yeah. um i have a good friend colleague we're doing some work with him right now troy hornberger who has a mm. mighty mouse model where he gets these mice to climb up a treadmill and pull a big heavy sled and these mice literally look like like they are mm. They're swole. They're they're big mice, and you know. So what if you had those kind of people, and 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 then you gave them a running wheel as well? I mean, mice can run. What is it? it's like ten uh, kilometers 10. a night. Yeah, it's, I, it's insane. Yeah. So my point was that I, I'm assuming the studies that are showing the protein restriction is is beneficial in in rats that are unphysiologically sedentary. Just in a cage. If you just had just them on a cage. running wheel, at least they could be sort of normally active. And then see if well, you've got the same it, result. They, they could be active to the extent we think is a good idea. Whether that's normal, I think in the human population is probably abnormal. But but you, you get my point. I, I, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the things I do say is that particularly in old age, this downward sort of sarcopenic decline. If we all age like that, we probably would be okay. But it's when you hit a. a, a you know, my late friend uh, Doug Patton Jones, a catabolic crisis. You you get sick you get cancer, you're in hospital, you're in bed, you get flu, you get COVID, you're in the, you know, something like that, that catabolic crisis, those are watershed moments for older people. So mm. I'd like to see our protein restricted animal exposed to a couple of catabolic crises and see whether they have the functional reserve, which is their muscle uh, to withstand that. My, my bet is that they probably wouldn't be in as good a shape. Okay, so I've got another question from Twitter. Mark Preben uh, Lindback. Um, why is there like a like a difference in longevity between like endurance athletes and former endurance athletes? So I think endurance, um, sorry, endurance athletes live longer than weight trained athletes. Is that correct? And why do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's it's interesting. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, up at the top levels, I, I think that, uh, you know, masters athletes who are runners, cyclists, that sort of thing, I, I don't doubt that they are they are the uh, epitome of, of, of optimal aging, aging successfully. So lifetime runners, lifetime cyclists, uh, lifetime lifters, uh, particularly if they adopt some of the more bizarre habits that are associated with powerlifting, et cetera, mm. um, bodybuilding in particular, I don't think are models of health. I think though, when you look at the population aggregated data on people who now self-report, but adhere to the guidelines endurance-wise, adhere to the guidelines strength-wise, there's an additive benefit in lowering mortality risk across a number of different health conditions. We've got a paper just got accepted. It's, I must admit, we're all we're doing is reproducing other people's data in the paper, but we got it out there mainly to try and get it to be more mainstream and understood. But the athletic dichotomy is, I think, because of the specificity of the practice of a lot of associated poor habits that are basically found in lifetime power lifters. So it, it doesn't surprise okay. me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So another one from Twitter, uh, Anastasios uh, Macris. Sorry if I've really butchered that. Some insights into the emerging evidence showing that muscle hypertrophy is achieved through high and low 
uh, resistance training, and also some insights regarding your recent study, the role of muscle capitalization on muscle hypertrophy. Yeah, um, I, I think, you know, the high load, low load, uh, you know, high loads mm -hmm. are, are required for hypertrophy versus low loads are required for endurance. Uh, I think when you take both of them to fatigue, uh, it, it's, you know, beyond debate now that they both work in the sense that they beget hypertrophy. Um, my good friend, Brad Schoenfeld, uh, he's out there a lot more than I am on social media. He's performed several meta-analyses. Uh, it, it, it's not, it, it's not, not something you can dispute. You know, the, the low loads, probably to a certain uh, rep range, you know, once you get beyond 50 reps, I doubt whether it's high, hypertrophy mm -hmm. anymore, probably closer to endurance. But, you know, if you're failing at 25 reps, uh, with a lighter load or, you know, four or five reps with a heavier load, uh, you're going to grow muscle exactly the same. And that's basically because close to fatigue, or if you drive people to absolute fatigue, you know, the size principle says you're going to recruit all motor units, you're going to activate all the muscle fibers, and the growth stimulus just happens because that's turning on muscle fibers. Um, the, the capillary question is an interesting one, and it was my colleague, Johnny Parisi, that uh, in his lab, um, Aaron Thomas, currently a PhD student with me, actually did the study, and they showed that if you did a little bit of endurance work prior to doing hypertrophy work, uh, that you got a, a greater hypertrophy um, as a result, they think, uh, of the, the, their thesis was of the capillarization that you got as a result of doing the endurance work. And so it comes back to this issue of blood flow, but not bulk blood flow mm. into a you know, a big femoral artery, but the local capillary blood flow that is maybe delivering nutrients or facilitating um, probably, I, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing here, autocrine or paracrine signals within the muscle itself and, uh, you know, facilitating growth. Um, I, I, I would love to be able to give you more insight on that one, but uh, the truth is I'm guessing. So it's um, funny because I remember now years and years ago when I was a runner, I used to go to the gym and then I used to go for a run after. So I had it back to front. <laughs> Maybe I could <laughs> well, it depends that. what your goal was, right? Like if you want to bigger runner. growth, exactly. you should have done it that way. But probably, you know, as a runner, you're doing it the right way. But, oh, right. Uh, you know, it's, I, and I think the other thing we remember the, um, the old sort of, you know, interference, classic interference mm. effect, like, you know, the two, and, and now a, a lot of studies have shown that probably particularly the way that you perform them and if you perform them like athletes, in other words, you lift here and run here or run here and lift here and have a period of recovery in between, that classic interference effect that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's not there. Like it, it, you're able to, you know, ostensibly get the best of both worlds. True, if you lift heavy and you do a lot, you're probably not gonna be the best long distance runner. And if you, um, you know, run and sprint and don't do long distance, you have the same type of thing, exactly. but team sports athletes and the, the science of programming these sessions and how they do things that has come a long, a, a long way. And I don't think the two are quite as incompatible as we once, you know, sort of told everybody all the time that they were. So. Okay, great. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much. Um, how about if we just think we've covered a lot of ground here, but if we just have, I don't know, two, three, three, four sort of take home messages that you'd want people to take on board. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the you know, the biggest one from the, from the health standpoint is, um, 
I think I think resistance exercise and being strong is important, particularly as you get older. I think it's a, a key part of aging well and probably needs as much attention as your aerobic fitness. Um, the other one, you know, we talked about protein, and I think most people are probably getting enough through their normal diet. I don't think supplements are necessary. They're useful, convenient, if you like. Um, as you get older, I think people need to begin to pay attention a little bit more to their protein intake. Not massive amounts, but you know, don't just become the tea and toast and uh, sort of sweet food carbohydrate. Think a little bit about protein. It's, it's probably going to be more important than you realize. Uh, and at the same time, uh, I, I remain to be convinced through any sort of human data that's out there uh, that protein is in any way affecting people's longevity or lifespan. Um, protein restriction studies, predominantly from rodents, really don't, I don't think, translate particularly well to humans, but uh, more work to be done. I respect the science that's out there, particularly those that do it. Intriguing. Um, I'm just not convinced we can draw a straight line comparison over to people just yet. Okay, great. And, uh, and I think another sort of takeaway, I guess, that I've picked up is that you've been willing to move. You, you know, you haven't just stayed with your yeah. ideas and uh, hopefully the bros and various other people can move as well. Uh, it, eventually. It's, or, it's hard. Mm. It's hard. It's been mm. hard to, you know, you got to choke it down, right? For years, I, I, I preached a different message. And then when I first started saying, I don't know that this is the case. People are like, what are you talking about? You're just, you're bowing to pressure. And I said, you know what? I, I'm bowing to the science. The and mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll be honest, you know, um, for as much experimental stuff that we've done, Glenn, it wasn't until we began to do some of these evidence-based syntheses and I saw the data come out and there was no mm-hmm. difference in it. Like, or the difference was like this tiny thin slice and I, I just, at that point, I began to say, I'm like, geez, you know, a lot of what I've been telling people, like, it's not right. Or if it is an effect, it's, it's this effect. I still stand behind lift some weights. It's a good idea. But the protein on top is, um, uh, and I, I've contributed to that uh, unwillingly. Uh, mm-hmm. Now I'm trying to set the record straight and just tell people it's a, it's a very, very small difference. I think, like I think you can the- find it great. I think this is a perfect example and a beautiful example of a so-called negative effect. I've always had a, a gripe with people saying, oh, that's a negative effect. You found yeah. no effect. But I think yeah. what, what, you know, what's more important to show, oh, a, you know, a plant-based diet is no different to an animal diet when it comes to, you know, how's that a negative effect? Yeah. It's I, yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's just, Food and, and, and exercise and, you know, like it's become not exercise as much, but, but food in particular is enormously polarizing. I think it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's mostly, it's almost politics these days and everybody eats. So everybody's an expert. And particularly if you find people with a, with a weight loss story, and, and I understand for a lot of people like weight loss and lasting weight loss, that's an epiphany moment. And, and I don't want to tell people what to do or not to do if they've been able to achieve that. But it doesn't mean it works for everybody. And surely if there's an example in human evolution, the reason why our species has been around for as long as it has, and you know, we haven't been around for that long, but we've we've evolved and survived because we adapted and we're adaptable. If we weren't, we wouldn't be here. Exactly. And we've been around longer than supplements have. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> just, just a touch. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know you said you've actually gone a bit over, and your son's waiting out in the car. So thank you. He very is much for probably. Your time. Yeah, 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 yeah. My, my pleasure, you. Glenn. Thanks for having thank me you. on. It was uh, it was fun. Great. It was, it was fun. Yeah. Okay. See you, mate. Bye bye. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Um, please like, subscribe, pass it on to your friends and colleagues. Check out the other podcasts. Thanks again.